0: You're on Team Human, respite from the storm, clubhouse for the engaged but weary. We're taking a stand but willing to change it. We are not the law but the people, and we are alive. There's no way out, but that's the good news. It means we get to stay right here and work it all out in real time. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, psychiatrist and psychedelics researcher Julie Holland. Play is utilitarian. Play allows us to
1: make bigger leaps and creative leaps and think outside the box. And if psychedelics teach us how to play and be playful, there's a great utility in that. And that we need very creative responses now to what's happening with our government and with the environment and things like that. There's actual data showing that people who use psilocybin are more conscious of the environment, are more likely to be environmental activists and more likely to be eco-conscious
0: Julie and I will be interrogating and hopefully demonstrating some of the insights from her new book, Good Chemistry, The Science of Connection from Soul to Psychedelics. It's time to intervene on our own behalf. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. I've had so many Zoom calls these past few weeks. I mean, a lot. Five to seven a day. And These little conferences and things, little gatherings of people trying to be more human or more eco or less racist or more problem-solving. It's mostly well-meaning, really smart, usually better educated than me white folks trying to figure out how to make things better. They're, They're trying to get on Zoom and like... Figure this out. Like, we're going to have... This is the feeling. It's like we're going to have this discussion. There's going to be five smart people having a discussion on Zoom with 40 or 50 other people kind of watching and asking questions. And we're going to just figure it out or one of them one of these people who's got an answer is going to convince the others that oh that really is the answer we have to do this thing we we have to get people to understand this axiom or this principle or get people to connect in this way rather than that way and then things are going to be good and I, I identify with it. I understand what people want to they want to fix this. But I don't think a, a Zoom call is going to fix this, however good it is. You know, it, it might be nice, like, you know, going to church or synagogue and having some other people and, and talking with them and, and sharing some sensibilities and realizing, yeah, okay, this is serious and, and, and I need to think about these things. But as an approach to solving things, I don't know, And and, and social media social media is even worse. I mean, I've gotten to the place where I I really I'm seeing no good in conversing on Twitter. I mean, I'm happy to use the platform to post links to this podcast or to my Medium pieces, just just trailheads, but to use Twitter or, or Facebook, I mean, I a, a woman in my town today was just posting uh, to Facebook about how you know she's upset that the original indigenous and Sanskrit uses of the swastika have been co-opted by the Nazis and that Jews shouldn't complain about swastikas because they're going to lead people to think that swastikas are bad when they're actually, you know, when they're good. And, and I get that. I mean, the first instance of swastikas were back in, in 10,000 uh, BCE, you know, and, and they had nothing to do with the Nazis. They're, yes, they co-opted it for white supremacy the same way that people today are co-opting the American flag for white supremacy. I mean, or that we're going to use Twitter somehow to argue out the use of the Confederate flag and talk about Leonard Skinner listeners using, using the flag on their trucks. And what does that mean? And do they know what it means? And don't they have to stop because of what it, it's an important conversation, but it's really hard to do it in what now, 280 characters that you have on Twitter or in that space with the, with the biases of that particular medium? What happens when we end up using a a social media digital environment to work out these kinds of complex human issues is we end up with people pulling down a statue of Ulysses S. Grant. The Union General, right? That's the Northern Army, the side that was trying to free the slaves, ostensibly. We get them pulling that down because they think he's a a, a Civil War slave owner. We end up with these very over-determined binaries and just terrible language like defund the police. And I get it. I, I agree. You listen to my monologue from last week. It's all about that. But defund the police sounds to 99% of people who hear it like, just abolish the police. That's really tricky. Or the language of, if you are not an anti-racist, you're a racist. That's a really tricky binary for most people to get their heads around. Or when they do, it ends up leading not to a, a, a full spectrum of understandings in that human way, but it ends up really... It ends up in authoritarianism or the language of white supremacy and fighting white supremacy. And it's not the white that's the problem with white supremacy. It's the supremacy. But this is a space. The social media space is a space of winners and losers. We're not going to get to no supremacy when we're trying to have a tweet that wins. COVID on top of all this. It's it's particularly dangerous, not just as a, a lung disease, but because our necessary response, this this lockdown, is it, it really disables our ability to engage directly. And even when we are engaging directly, we've got masks over our faces. As shut-ins, we end up turning to social media to engage with one another. And not doing so, then feels like some sort of privileged retreat. Oh, well, you don't have to engage on social media because you're wealthy and white enough to stay out of this of this problem. And I, I get that. Not doing so feels like a cop-out. Like if we're not on there tweeting or retweeting something, we're part of the problem. But I'm not so sure that that's accurate. You know, relegating the future of social justice to platforms that are fine-tuned to provoke disagreements and to promote extremism, it may not be the right approach. But even if you're on there, even if that's where you want to fight it out, at the very least, I don't think that the object of the game is to come up with the answers, with the plans, with the solutions. I think that in itself is the approach that got us here. That's colonialism. That's the reductionist empirical science. That's the way we deal with the problem, right? That's the way we solve problems problems, like problems of, of Jews, or blacks, or women, or pestilence, or nature, or just that weird, creepy uncertainty I have when I'm around other people. You know, it's not a way to work with the other at all, but it's a way to label them, to shame them, and either take them down or earn their likes. I know we are lonely, and I know there's murder in the street, and the very spirit of of nature is re-correcting for the impact of civilization on the biosphere. But I don't think we plot our way out of this. There's no master plan or final solution. There's no thing that if we could just get everyone to do it, then everything would be okay. There is no game B. There is no reboot. right? And there's certainly no tweet to end all tweets. There's just the way we engage with one another and the world. There is no black and white. There's just color. I'm delighted to bring my dear friend Julie Holland back. Onto Team Human. I met Julie a few decades ago before she was even through med school, back when the idea that psychedelics may just have a role in our collective well being was considered pretty off the wall. So if you were one of the few people thinking seriously about the place of plant medicines in cultural wellness or the conspicuous illegality of entheogens in dominator cultures, and you found one of the others, well, you made a point of staying connected. Julie's new book, Good Chemistry, explores the chemical landscape of human connection while leaving ample room for the human soul animating all of this. Because of lockdown, we spoke over the interwebs, but I think you can still hear the prana passing between us. This is a fun one, and yes, it's okay to enjoy it, even right now. Yeah, and I got my coffee and my water and my microdose of mushrooms.
1: <laughs> have, you, have you had that this morning?
0: No, I mean, I probably should. I'm supposed to do it every third day. Then I keep forgetting, though, and then it's like, oh... Now I got to start over again. There's at least two microdosing protocols, right? I
1: mean there's there's one that's Fadiman which is every 3 or 4 days and then there's and then there's the Stamets protocol which is like 5 on 2 off. But, you know, you can be really sporadic and just take them when you remember and when you want to. And, you know, that day you may notice that you've a little bit more creative and a little bit more spring in your stuff. It's not like it doesn't work if, you know, if you just take it once in a while. Most people would tell you that on the days that they microdose, they feel something and you can
0: have that once a week or once a month. For me, there's a slightly speedy effect to it.
1: Yeah, it's funny that it almost feels speedier than something like, you know, dexedrine or Adderall. But uh, to some people, it definitely does. A microdose really is supposed to be, in
0: theory, sub-perceptual. It's also the problem of, you say you're intending to do a microdose, but you've got now a plastic bag full of mushrooms. <laughs>
1: right. right. Well, that's like the you. issue of, like, who eats who eats a tenth of a candy bar, right? Exactly. Or, a quarter, or a quarter of a cookie. Like, what kind of, <laughs> what kind of alien is going to actually... Really moderate their intake like that. I,
0: I always hear Terence McKenna in my head. It's like, dude, if you're not doing a heroic dose, you're not doing a dose. You right. know, it's
1: <laughs> I absolutely am not binary when it when it comes to psychedelics. I mean, I think you know, and that's why uh, I include cannabis in in the sort of family of psychedelics because, it, like everything, it's a spectrum, and you can have a little bit of cannabis or you can have a lot of cannabis, and if you really ingest, especially orally, a lot of cannabis. You're going to have some psychedelic effects, but even at just like a, you know, normal getting high kind of a dose, you you do have this sort of opening and expansion of, of your mind or creativity, or you become more aware of your mind, which is the original, you know, meaning of psychedelic is mind manifesting, right? So even just something, you know, you get a little high from cannabis and you start sort of thinking about your thoughts, you know, that's already kind of mind manifesting, so... I do think that uh, psychedelics are on a spectrum, and I would say at the at the other end of the spectrum are things like, you know, five meo DMT, which are so ultra potent and hard to integrate because they're such intense. Psychedelic experiences, and then there's everything you know in the middle of cannabis and 5-MeO, which you know, psilocybin, LSD, ayahuasca, ibogaine. Uh, I'm sure I'm leaving out some of my some of my <laughs> favorites I haven't <laughs> mentioned, but um, you MDMA, know, MDMA. Uh, well, you know, and and so whether MDMA is is you know certainly it's not a classical psychedelic, and most people would say it's not a psychedelic of any kind. But again, I would refer you to the original definition of mind manifesting, and I would say MDMA sure is mind manifesting. And yes, it definitely shows us patterns of thought and potentially ways to get out of those patterns. But if you really broaden psychedelic, then things like meditation or psychedelic. So anything that's, that sort of gets you thinking about your thinking, it's a great time to be a psychiatrist because people are more open to talking about these mind manifesting medicines and, and what they can do for us and whether they can help us process our trauma, or our grief, or make us less anxious, or less narcissistic, or um, more uh, environmentally conscious, conscientious, more civic conscious, or conscientious. So th- we've got all these great tools that have kind of been bubbling around, and people have been talking about it, but they're really coming to the forefront.
0: Well, that's the interesting thing, though, about psychedelics and your role in this in this community. So you're both a psychiatrist- and a psychedelics researcher and activist. So you you have a kind of a day job as a doctor for individuals, but you can't help but also be a doctor for our kind of psychically struggling society at the same time.
1: <laughs> I absolutely am. I mean, I'm, I've i always been public health oriented. I mean, even, even like as a little kid and my dad, you know, I grew up outside of Boston. We would go in the city sometimes and I would see people who were, you know, picking through garbage or begging on the street. And I wanted my dad to give them money and I didn't understand, you know, why they didn't have what they needed. I do have this uh, empathic sort of connection that I want to help people. And I do feel like I have an obligation as a physician, as somebody who took an oath and swore to the Hippocratic oath that it's not just about treating individual people and patients. I do want to help society. And it is as if everyone is is a patient and, and is my patient to some degree. It can be a real blurring of the lines. I care deeply about public health policy and about drug policy in particular.
0: Even if you want to take a symptom like anxiety, it's not entirely personal. I feel like for me, anxiety isn't All this kind of Freudian individual psychic stuff coming up, but it's almost like when you go to Florida or Bermuda or somewhere and you walk around in the ocean and you just get to like a warm patch or a cold patch, that anxiety starts to feel like almost an environmental weather that then comes into my nervous system.
1: There's always this sort of background hum of, oh my God, we're destroying the planet and what are we doing and what is that going to do to us? So, and then, and then there's the added anxiety, which we could spend hours talking about, about, you know, even in the best situation, even if we had like great leaders who we felt comfortable and we trusted and we knew they were, they were looking out for us and we were all going to get through this together. Even if we had all of that in place, which clearly we don't, there would still be the anxiety of, I could catch a virus that will kill me or kill my loved ones. You know, you add to that sort of the chaos and the distrust um, and the deep fear and the sort of polarization that's happening in America. And like, yes, we're anxious. We were already anxious before this. You know, we already had like the loneliness epidemic and the opioid epidemic and the fact that we were killing the planet. I I learned a new word when I was researching this latest book called Ecocide. And, uh, you know, I talk about sort of our collective grief that we are traumatizing the planet. Things are getting pretty dire. And then you add the pandemic layered like a lovely icing on top of an anxiety cake. There's a lot. There's plenty for all of us. The interesting thing, though, to me, which makes it so different from anything that's ever happened, is that this is a global trauma. This is unifying and that we are all in this trauma together. And
0: that is true. Yeah, I mean, the words of people like Marianne Williamson start to make sense over the last few years. You know, as I was watching the debates, whenever she would talk, I would be like, Yes, it sounds crazy, but that's also the sanest thing anybody up there has said this evening. And you realize, oh my gosh, we really do have to pull back to this almost soul spiritual place in order to in order to heal. And that's why you're reassuring because you went through medical school and learned all the chemistry and and as you write, we can see that what you're writing is informed by real science. But you're not a cold hearted. Scientific nihilist, thinking that we're just fungus on a rock hurling through cold and medi- meaningless space. Right.
1: Well, I would say at
0: least, at least we're not all fungus, is what I. Is what I would
1: say there. <laughs> at least not primarily. I mean, if you want to identify as fungus, I do not want to take that away from you. But that's true. And fungi, I mean, are maybe better than us. The book that I have coming out in in June, uh, it's called Good Chemistry, and the subtitle is The Science of Connection from Soul to Psychedelics. Now five years ago, I would have like absolutely balked if you told me that I was going to have the word soul on the cover of a book. I mean, obviously I'm thrilled to have the word psychedelics. And the funny thing is five years ago, I could not pitch a book with the word psychedelic in the subtitle or the title. And they, you know, it wouldn't be on the front cover, but like the publisher specifically wanted the word psychedelic in the subtitle. So like, we've come a long way, baby, no question. But this, but this word soul, you know, there was a time years ago if I was going to talk about soul in my office, I would I would preface it with an apology. I would really yeah. sort of, you know, couch it or make air quotes or something.
0: Oh, I do the same thing. I mean, cuz you know, I did the whole team humans st- Tour is really a celebration of the human soul. And I'll always tell people look, if soul is too big for you, then just think about like James Brown, soul, right? He's got soul. So think of it that way if right. it's too or threatening a concept. Maybe essence or something. But look, right. getting
1: back to Marion Williamson, like it's the stuff when you start talking about soul or essence or whatever, it's all kind of woo woo and crunchy granola and, you know, go back to the 60s. But we did learn some really basic facts in the 60s from our psychedelic experiences which, you know, are truisms and are coming back around now. And it is things like we are all interconnected that, you know, love is really the answer and love is the thing that will save us. And love is the thing that created us. And, uh, we are all one and one is love, you know, it's all the sort of trippy realizations or, you know, ketamine or nitrous insights that you like write down, you know, if you happen to have a pen and paper by next to your bedside (laughs) when you're tripping and you, and you come away with these things, but, but when you actually Speak them, and certainly on a presidential debate stage, you know, you say these things,
0: you sound ridiculous, but they're no less true. Right. I mean, the the weird thing about psychedelics over time is when. Our generation was introduced to psychedelics. It was during a relatively peaceful time. And it was, you know, in the 70s or 80s or early 90s, in college or at raves or with friends. And psychedelics were not, at least we didn't experience them as medicine right. to heal us. Right. We experienced it as something more than entertainment. I mean, it wasn't like just going to a movie, it was like going to an important Brecht play or something. <laughs> it's you know? like info. It's like infotainment,
1: right? Yeah, infotainment. Learn something, but you're going to have fun while you do it,
0: right? But it's a real trip. We're not just going to go camping. We are going to go hiking for three weeks in yeah. the Andes, <laughs> and you're going to learn something when you're doing that. It was weird. There was a, a counterculture that. No matter what we said, whether we said it was, oh, we have our music in common or we have fractals in common or technology in common, what we really had in common, even when I met you at Dan Levy's house, a party for, for Terrence McKenna, what we all had in common was that we were part of an illegal subculture that recognized the value in these psychedelic experiences. And now I feel like we're, we're saying, well, wait a minute, these are also medicine, for people and a society that's lost the ability to connect. Right. And that needs to heal from trauma.
1: Although- maybe that is a lot to ask. You know, I I still honestly would like the kids that are tripping because they want to just roll around in the grass and laugh. I still want them to have that experience, you know, like that, that was valid. And, you know, one of the early dichotomies that came up when I was sort of, I guess I'm going to say proselytizing for lack of a better word, but back in the eighties, I was, I was very keen on MDMA being helpful for psychotherapy and for psychiatry, but I also didn't want to discount that there were people who were just enjoying themselves and dancing and, you know, feeling connected with the people on the dance floor. And that that in and of itself is also therapeutic, that recreation is therapeutic. The irony is that with the cannabis now, it's totally been split into medical and recreational, but I am here to say that those two things are one and the same.
0: I guess the trick though, is, I mean, certainly for a nice Jewish boy from the suburbs like me is, you know, once I wake up and realize, oh my gosh, look how privileged I am that I got to in my twenties or thirties, you know, take psychedelics and dance around that, that feels like self-indulgent. Like how dare we roll around on the grass and play when there's people starving and social justice to be done that if it's not work, I mean, and there's people who could do psychedelics in the, in the, parking lot of the ACDC concert and just smash beer bottles on their head and not learn anything, it seems.
1: Well, I haven't come across that many people (laughs) who have come away from psychedelic experiences without uh, at least sort of a handful of mottos or ideas that they go on to either like tattoo on their arm or just you know write down in a book somewhere and every once in a while they look back and say, you know, I I thought this was true and I I think that it still is true. Even if it's like, you know, ACDC is God or whatever. But it's still there is still still some sort of realizations. But also look, yes, I will acknowledge my privilege and, you know, I've I've been working on a piece, the title of which is Charmed, I'm sure. Like, you know, I had a (laughs) charmed life. I was lucky. I yes, I was rolling around in the grass and I skipped school one day with my friends and we didn't get arrested. But that experience of rolling around and laughing on the grass and that feeling of joy and like I belong to the earth. And maybe, you know, as I looked out at the sky, I thought like like what is beyond this and, you know, how small and fragile the earth is. But like those sort of little thoughts, and especially in adolescence, they get in pretty deep and they survive a lot of pruning and they go on to inform my sense that everyone is connected and that I, you know, what I do to someone else I do to myself, those things end up sort of, you know, being part of my fabric. So that's why I don't discount uh, recreational experiences. and you know, I went through a, a pretty significant rave period and it really helped me understand oxytocin and tribalism and you know, feeling part of a group and how sort of heady and intoxicating that is. and and honestly, going to raves helps me understand, the appeal of a Trump rally to somebody who is there. So that's right. something. Because if we right. don't uh, understand, sure. if we don't have compassion, we're we're so fucked. And like you know, the lessons from our psychedelic experiences, we have to actually integrate them into the here and now. And that's hard because I'm writing a piece about about Trump and ayahuasca. If you can imagine, I don't know exactly how it's going to go, but it was right after the election, and the Corandera said to us, "Trump needs compassion." you have to find compassion for him. And that is, that's your journey. And, and
0: we were all just like, (laughs) Oh, that's what Ram Dass was saying too. You know, when they asked Ram Dass about Trump and he says, I keep a picture of him on my prayer table and, and I'm looking at him and I think what karma did this guy come in with to be, you know, so angry now and to be, to be, You know, fighting like that. What karma did he come in with? What
1: trauma did he go through? I mean, you know, people people get sort of stuck, right, where they get traumatized. So, like, some people get a little bit stuck in toddlerhood, or they get a little bit stuck in adolescence because they've had traumas. And you know, I would wager he's not my patient. I've never examined him. (laughs) I am not beholden to the Goldwater rule whatsoever because I'm not a member of the AMA, but I am beholden to the Hippocratic Oath, and I do care about public safety. So I will speculate that I believe he was probably traumatized, both in toddlerhood and in adolescence. He's got a lot of features of each and his behavior. It is hard, of course, to muster compassion for somebody who's doing all these things that we sort of deem as a society uh, are, are sort of evil and you're not supposed to do. And he lies and then he lies about lying and and he's pitting you know states against each other and countries against each other. And he's dis- disrupting the world order. I mean, it's crazy what's happening. But we have all been complaining about him for three plus years, but he hasn't changed. We've changed. America has changed because of him and bitching about his pathology is getting us nowhere. So we do have to find some other approach. And so I am trying to think about, you know, I imagine what it would be like for him if he were in an ayahuasca session. And, okay, granted, I take a little bit of pleasure in imagining him sort of, you know, writhing on the ground and crying and vomiting. Uh, but also, maybe maybe he's coming to some realizations about his life and how he was treated perhaps by his parents or perhaps by the boys in military school. You know, I don't think it's a coincidence that he surrounds himself with generals and he's got a hard-on for dictators. I think that stuff really came out of his time in military school. And I think that, you know, his narcissism, it's very appealing to him, this idea of being a dictator.
0: The interesting thing, though, is that the destabilization that happens to us as human beings who are still striving for connection no matter what, you know, whether it's psychedelic connection and we get that sort of Buddhist everything is everything. Or when we're traumatized and destabilized and are looking for connection, we end up moving into kind of a QAnon paranoid story about, well, the way to make sense of Trump is to kind of reverse engineer a scenario where this makes sense. So there is, there's a deep state that's funded by Soros and the Europeans and and the pederists of Jeffrey Epstein and Bill Gates working with Fauci to force people to take vaccines. And here's this guy, Trump, who's trying to uncover these conspiracies and save America from this, you know, very dark truth. I can understand the urge to try to paint a picture where it all makes sense as a substitute for the connection that you're talking about.
1: Right, well, but also it's, it's very unsettling like, let's say he's your father or something, right? You would rather be like, okay, well, dad has a plan. He knows what he's doing. I'm just, you know, I know it seems weird now, but he's got a plan. Like, that's just how you comfort yourself when you're a scared child. The truth is that, that many of us are, our parents uh, were winging it and, you know, sometimes they got lucky and sometimes they didn't. And, I do think that just because of of his personality type, he sows chaos. He's comfortable with chaos. And Trump is at an advantage if other people are destabilized and chaotic and don't know what's real and what's not. And then that's, you know, that's one of the real advantages of being a a chronic, uh, a compulsive liar is that everybody around you ends up not on firm ground because
0: they don't know what's real and what's not and what's information and what's misinformation. Right. The weird thing is that's, partly a psychedelic feeling, you know what I mean? That, that sense of being untethered from our reality tunnels. So yeah. there, I, a lot of people, you know, have been asking me about Robert Anton Wilson and how, you know, his notion of, of conspiracy theory and reality tunnels, how that really applies in an age of Trump where we no longer know, you know, you could put on your, your MSNBC reality tunnel, your CNN one or your Fox right, one right, or your, exactly. you know that there's something healthy in that in moving into that sort of ontological relativism or nothing is true because everything is true that's there's something th- that reminds me of the psychedelic insight in yeah. that but there's still a real reality though right I mean- <laughs> I mean, I guess you get schizophrenic kind of patients asking you this all the time. But it's like <laughs> Please tell me something is real. Is there what right? Is there one reality here? Or is it just well, whatever we
1: our consensus creates? Right. You know, I'm a medical doctor and my training was very biologically based. So I do sort of rely on science as being the thing that is real. And you know, science insists that things are replicated. You know, you don't just take a bunch of anecdotes, but you really have a well controlled protocol randomized placebo control before you you know make determinations so i do sort of rely on science and one of the things that's really terrifying to me actually is like when trump starts to dismantle things like you know the pandemic response or epa or he starts putting his own people into cdc that's really terrifying to me because then now you're starting to actually like dismantle the science or people's access to the science
0: Right. Or at least on a federal level. I mean, what it yeah. what it demands then is to say, okay, we've got to create lots of smaller state-run CDCs right. or city-run CDCs. We're right. going to have to fill it from the bottom up if he dismantles the federal government.
1: So I guess, again, I get, it's funny. I want to make a terrible joke, which is like, again, it's a good time to be a psychiatrist.
0: People are right. freaking out. There's a lot of anxiety. Right. There's a lot of trauma. For sure. And I've always seen myself in the same profession of you know not not doing it with medical knowledge but more sort of you know literary or narrative knowledge helping people make sense of right. the world so that they are capable of taking autonomous intentional action i mean it's the other side of it you're doing it from the side of the psyche what i'm doing it is more from the side of the social scientist saying no 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 wait a minute this thing that you're mistaking for reality These are not given conditions. These are creations. These are institutions that were created by some people at some moment of history that you're now or we're all mistaking for the way things are, like, you know, whatever it is, central currency or banking or corporatism or, you know, nation states.
1: Well, I think, you know, the other thing is we should probably touch briefly on our ability to learn is affected by how anxious we are. But also our ability to learn is affected by how isolated we are a few different
0: ways. I'm assuming you mean the more anxious we are, the worse we learn? (laughs) not the other way around. Right. Right. It's, that's pretty much true. But I mean, although I will make one exception, which is like, if
1: something very terrible happens to you and you are extremely anxious and fearful when it happens, that may get, get in very deep that you have got to learn fear now of this thing. But I would say in general, with like this background hum of things that are putting us into fight or flight, when you are in fight or flight, you lose quite a few things. One of the things you lose is that you're not very good at being social Right? If, you, if your kitchen's on fire, you're not going to pick up the phone and chat before you put it out
0: and you know, run away. So it's right, like, you get all cortisol and no right. oxytocin. And no oxytocin,
1: and... exactly. So when you're in fight or flight, the oxytocin is low, your social skills are low, but also your learning is low because oxytocin facilitates neuroplasticity, which is required for learning. The really interesting animal studies that's showing that if you take an animal who's in solitary housing and you try to teach them you know, to respond to when they get shocked, if they're always in solitary, they don't learn very well. But if they're in social housing and you take them out and you shock them and you put them back with their friends and then you take them and put them in the shocking room again, they know that's where they got shocked and they have a response. So that being socially isolated means that we are physiologically at a disadvantage for learning. And then also if you're socially not around people, you can't model other behavior, right? You're doing your own thing and you're not seeing how everybody else behaves except in your feed, which you are curating with every one of your likes. So like, it doesn't count, you know, if that's the information you're getting, it's like, you know, you click like, and so you get more of that. And so then that's the information you get. You just get so dug into your little silo. And that is one of the problems that's happening now with how polarized we are as a nation is that we're, we're all digging deeper into our own little polarized silo. And because of the personality structure of the president, he wants us polarized. He wants us fighting against each other. That is, that is what people with cluster B personalities do. They create embroglios. They say a few different things to a few different people. And then all those people fight amongst themselves because of what this person did. I mean, that's a great narcissistic ploy to keep everybody at a disadvantage and and i don't know if he's doing it consciously or unconsciously or if he's being advised you know by people who are smarter or more evil than him and then there's this whole issue of whether he is you know in in a a dementing process if he is like further and further cognitively compromised, which is my intuition, is that is also part of the picture here. What's going on is you're seeing, you know, as with anybody who starts to get more demented, uh, the early stages of dementia, you see a few things. You see a, a a coarsening of core personality traits, and you see a disinhibition. For instance, you know, if you've seen this guy like molest a flagpole, (laughs) you know, like, (laughs) uh, that's pretty disinhibited behavior. Or, you know, making puns, like he can't even stop himself. You know, he's talking about the modeling and the models, and he's like, I've been under a few models, (laughs) you know, like, (laughs) uh, perfect, like the letter was perfect, you know, he can't stop himself from uh, showing his true personality. It happens over and over again.
0: Right, that every association he makes ends up going into his mouth. But the other thing that's interesting to me about, maybe I'm getting senile to make this connection, it starts to make me think about that the the myth here, one that I've been under anyway, is that solving these problems requires more work. That in some ways, when I look at our problem economically, oh, how are we going to get everybody back to work? And what are we going to do? And that these are... These are also misperceptions that we have because of the way our economy works. We actually don't need more production of more goods for more people. There's plenty of stuff. Right. There's plenty of food. We're burning food. We've got <laughs> right. empty buildings with homeless people and tents in the parking lots, right. you know, right. that In some ways, the problem is not that we're not working hard enough, but that we're working too hard. That in some ways it feels to me like one of the beauties of psychedelia is if you don't learn to have fun, you're gonna have a bad trip. You know, that basically these psychedelics are fun. They institutionalize a kind of, and I don't mean it in a in a terrible way, but a kind of a useless fun. It's not applied, it's non-utilitarian. You may not bring anything that's going to help you at your job at Google, but it's just. Bringing you into a state of appreciation for how things are, and you know, and you have a great moment in the book where you say that we are swiping left. We're just constantly swiping left. In other words, swiping left is like in one of those dating programs. It's like the people you don't want, the thing you don't want. It's just like
1: rejecting reality, rejecting what the options are.
0: Right. You keep rejecting it, but it's great for consumerism, right? Right. Get rid of this computer. Get another one. Get rid of this phone. Get rid of this wife. We
1: upgrade the stuff we own, and we upgrade, you know, our partners and our lovers.
0: Right, and that keeps the economy growing, right. but the only reason we're growing, and I've talked about this elsewhere, the only reason we're growing the economy is to pay the bankers. It doesn't help real business function to grow. A business can get to it its right It doesn't help side. people,
1: right. Well, you know, unrestricted growth in medicine is called cancer
0: uh, um, it's yeah. not, you
1: know, it's not healthy. Pruning and sculpting and pulling back is is what is healthy, and that is what is happening now, like it or not. But I also want to talk to you about this non utilitarian idea of play, yeah. because play is utilitarian. Play allows us to make bigger leaps and creative leaps and think outside the box. And if psychedelics teach us how to play and be playful, there's a great utility in that, and that we need very creative responses now to what's happening with our government and with the environment and things like that. There's actual data showing that people who use psilocybin are more conscious of the environment, are more likely to be environmental activists, and more likely to be eco-conscious, as well as they're less likely to engage in domestic violence. So we have direct benefits, you know, even if you don't look at the, the benefits to depression, which are real and persistent, there are still these other benefits of being more creative, being more playful.
0: But it's quite possible that you only get those utilitarian ancillary benefits of play because you've been playing without that in mind. Because you've been genuinely playing for the sake of play. Yes. Yeah. You know what I mean? So then it makes me wonder then also about this focus on connection, you know, and the science of connection from soul to psychedelics. When when I hear that, what what I start wondering is, are you seeing That our connection is for something, that with better connection, then we handle the world better and better politics and better global this, or is connection the whole point? Is connection the goal? Well, it is, I would say it is the goal and that, I mean, I also, you know, when you look at
1: the biology and the, and I talk a lot about sympathetic versus parasympathetic, right? When you're in fight or flight, you're really not looking to connect. You're looking to be aggressive or evasive, right? You're either going to fight or flee. And when you're connecting is when you're in the other form, which is the parasympathetic. So it's when cortisol and adrenaline are down and you're not in fight or flight that you are able to. To make connections and whether you're connecting with a partner or with a child or your family or your dog or with nature or with your community or if you're tripping and you feel connected with the cosmos, all of that connection brings about this good chemistry, things like oxytocin and also, you know, tickles the endocannabinoid system. And dopamine and endorphins, it's like, you know, all the happy juice comes out when we feel connected, but it's not just connected with another person, or a family or community or nature or cosmos. It's also when we feel connected with ourselves, when we feel in line with who, you know, our true essence, you know, this idea of like emotional integrity or authenticity, just being embodied and connected unto yourself is a state where you will have less anxiety. So anytime you're connecting with any of these things, you're going to be in, in the parasympathetic mode, which is really uh, our natural default setting where we're supposed to be, where we are resting and digesting and connecting and protecting. It's that tendon befriend, mode. And that's the only mode where our bodies can heal itself. It's like oxytocin right. helps
0: wound healing. And you can feel it, you know, and you feel it, especially, you know, right after an experience of awe, right. you can go into that. And I will say one thing about
1: that, which is that it puts us in, a, in this opened state. It's an ultra open state that is particularly good for learning. It really primes the brain for learning. But it also, it gives us this sort of small self- sense. If you feel like everything is connected and the universe is connected, you know, at the peak of a psychedelic experience, you, you may feel as big as the universe and like you are jacked into the universe, or you may feel very small because you realize how tiny you are compared to the scope of the universe. So that like small self sense that you also get with awe, you know, if you're at the Grand Canyon or looking up at the stars, you know, this sense that you're small and that, but that you're part of something big, that is a, a unique magical sort of experience for the brain and the body.
0: And it puts us deep into parasympathetic. And that's what leads to this impulse that you keep writing about for collective planetary healing, that once you experience that connection, it's like, oh, wait a minute. It's not to say it's ego-filled, but this is all me. This is all connected to me. These trees are my lungs. These rivers are my circulatory system. Yeah, this this whole like illusion of separation that that we're under most of the day. Right, but
1: psychedelics help to dis- to dispel that illusion. And that's sort of why, you know, I have a fantasy in this piece I'm writing that like Trump ha- Takes ayahuasca, and so that that illusion of separation dissolves, and he he sees that we're all interconnected and connected, and that we all need each other, and we all, you know, we can all work together, and that unity is beautiful. I mean, I'm not kidding myself that one ayahuasca session is going to do it for anybody with this sort of level of ingrained behavior, but it will be a start. And it's my fantasy, damn it, so. <laughs>
0: yeah, and it's my fantasy, too. I mean, I used to fantasize about, oh, right, giving it to George Bush, and Abby Hoffman fantasized about giving it to Nixon. Right. But- but you look at guys like you know Eric Schmidt and Jeff Bezos and all those guys they've all done these things they all went to, went to Burning Man and did their asset, and they're still seemingly unaware of the way that their quest for monopoly and total you know trillions of dollars is going to kill us all yeah well it is it is this kind of poverty mind never enough
1: thinking, but I don't know enough about them to To say, first of all, whether they've had these sort of heart-opening, mind-opening experiences, and second of all, whether it has any impact on their
0: behavior. Because people could have a full psychedelic experience and then, uh, as capitalists, recover right?
1: (laughs) Yeah. But it it is, right, so the point, your point, and I absolutely take it, is that it's a common fantasy, like, oh, if we could have given Nixon acid, oh, if we could have given Reagan MDMA, you know, but yes, (laughs) you know?
0: Right, and that's probably what happened, I mean, as Timothy Leary believed to his dying day, when he gave acid to the woman who uh, brought it to JFK, that this is the reason why JFK was ultimately killed, was he was doing acid, changed the way he thought about the world, and and they had, to get rid of them
1: you know, Sting, who, who is a long time ayahuasca enthusiast, you know, he had that song a long time ago, you know, the, the Russians love their children too. I hope the Russians love their children too. And it was this idea that we could bond, you know, back in the cold war, this idea that, you know, we love our children, they love their children. We should be able to find common ground and, and everybody can get along. I, I think that these sort of thoughts have been around for a long time and, and maybe it's sort of low hanging fruit to even, to even write about the fantasy of Trump coming to terms with some of his traumas. But I do, I, that's, I'm, Psychiatrist, and that is my fantasy is that you know, my patients who are self harming or who are dangerous to other people that they get in touch with how their trauma is affecting their behavior and make some changes. And, you know, whether they do that through a psychedelic experience or through extensive psychotherapy or EMDR or any, you know, somatic re-experiencing, I mean, there's so many ways to get at it, but we all, every one of us, I don't care how privileged and charmed your life was, you have trauma. We all have trauma and it does inform our behavior and it does need to be processed. And, you know, knowledge is power.
0: Do you ever worry that as we get more widespread acceptance of psychedelics for you know both individual and collective healing, that you know corporations get involved and come up with synthetic versions or synthetic analogs of these things that they end up missing their spiritual link, either the spiritual link to the plant itself or some more subtle elements in the plant that we just don't know chemically.
1: Yes, absolutely. I think, I mean, that's happening right now, right? I mean, we know, we know that they're making Ibogaine analogs that are less psychoactive. We know that they're making, you know, like a 45 minute DMT experience. I mean, there is manipulation that is going on. I mean, it's not exactly GMO, but Yes, I think that they are, I mean, I've definitely read articles about, you know, trying to sort of take the tripping part out of Ibogaine, for instance. And there's plenty of people who've been through Ibogaine experiences who are like, yeah, good luck. You're not going to get the same efficacy. But what if you do at least get a resetting of the tolerance to the opioids? I mean, uh, Actually, it's potentially dangerous to have a resetting of the tolerance if you don't have a resetting of the behavior. So I am nervous. These plant medicines, they have the same sort of entourage effects as cannabis that it's not just one molecule, it is the whole, it is the whole fungus or the whole plant or combination of plants that gives you the experience, but also even more than whatever the the substance is, it is your, your interpretation, your experience, you're reliving the traumas, you're putting the pieces together. And if you, if you don't have that, I just don't understand how you can have any real behavior change if you don't have real learning. Well, that's what I always
0: wondered, you know, that what they seem to be after and even, you know, bless his heart, even since the Sasha Shulgin days when he was at Bohemia Grove with the Republicans, that they're looking for a chemical that you can get all of the psychedelic programming, but without any communication from the spirit world or the plant world, as if, you know what I mean? We want your molecule, but we don't want what you've got to tell us about what we're doing to this planet or one another. Yeah.
1: Well, I think, you know, in for a penny, in for a pound. And I think that it's going to be very hard really to separate. And also, you know, the, there's this obsession with wanting to make sure people have good trips instead of bad trips. And, you know, that also is completely on a spectrum and and being in a challenging place or feeling like you don't exist anymore, that is sometimes an absolute inherent, crucial
0: piece of it. Right. if you're gonna to go to a, a psychologist or a psychiatrist and you say, Oh, I don't feel good during this session. It's like <laughs>
1: but, but the <laughs> thing right. is that but you know that <laughs> is what happens, which is why MDMA assisted psychotherapy is such a really marvelous thing because it makes people physiologically comfortable and very, very much in a parasympathetic, open, non fearful state, right? It's high oxytocin, the amygdala is tamped down, you're open for learning, you're primed for learning and for exploration, but you feel pretty Good, so you're not running away from it. And that is one of the things that makes it incredibly useful. Because in real normal therapy, you start getting too close to something, people disappear for months at a time, or you've lost them forever. You know, and it's it's like, you know, one step forward, two steps back, two steps forward, one step back. It's like peeling an onion. It takes years and it takes a long time to really see changes in symptoms or in behaviors but with psychedelic psychotherapy whether it's MDMA or psilocybin or or ibogaine or ayahuasca it is a catalyst for change for behavioral
0: change and so you see these things um more quickly and the odd thing about it is it's hard for people to believe this but but psychedelics can actually be almost anti hallucinogenic on a certain level i mean i had had a um when I was young, I was like twenty-two or something, I was in a car accident with my best friend and he died right next to me in the driver's seat. And it was, you know, super traumatic event. And for some reason, I believed that we had drugs in the car which you know we didn't but that he was like transporting a whole lot of drugs and they were in the trunk and I was waiting for the cops to find these drugs and the whole time in the emergency room and, and all through dealing with everything I was like when are they going to find it when are they going to find it and a couple of months later I did MDMA and while I was on MDMA it was only then and I did it partly because I knew it was going to help me kind of heal from this trauma while I was on MDMA I realized there were no drugs in the car at all. I had imagined the whole thing. Right. Well, you needed something
1: less terrible to obsess on than than the reality of what had actually happened.
0: Right. And uh, right. So I was obsessing on we're going to get caught, or or the cops are going to get him or me. But it, w- it was the drug that actually people who haven't experienced these drugs would think that the drugs would make you hallucinate more. But on a certain level, what they do is break up the hallucinations that we're walking around with all the time right
1: well i you know i don't know if you notice but i don't use the word hallucinogen i mean i try not to and uh, every right. once in a while i slip but i really because because to me it's they're not hallucinations they're realities you know and if i ha- if it has to be binary and i don't think it does but if it has to be binary then i would say that we are all walking around with the hallucination that we are uh, separate and not interconnected with with ourselves, right. with each other, with the planet, and that and that these psychedelics show us that very plainly. So, I mean, to me, it's not a hallucination. But I, I understand sort of the history of why these drugs were called hallucinogens, why before that they were called psychotomimetics, but it's not accurate. So I just try not to
0: propagate it. Right. As a scientist, what do you see as the nature of the connection between us all is it some like psychic morphogenetic thing that's happening in waves is it like polyvagal theory that we're just receptors of some kind that for a signal that's outside us in other words what is the nature of our connection to each other because apparently we're separate but we're actually part of something as much as our cells are part of a single organism I guess I would just revert back
1: to my typical answer with questions like this, which is that I I do tend to approach things pharmacologically. I am, uh, above all, I'm interested in drugs and behavior and, and the interaction of those two things. And so... I think a lot about oxytocin. I think a lot about the sort of how how behavior stimulates hormone release, but hormone release also stimulates behavior, and that these things are cyclical. But I do I do think that people have sort of auras. You know, I I mean, we the body is electromagnetic, so I do believe in this sort of electromagnetic aura idea, and I and I also absolutely believe in pheromones and scent and how sort of primary and
0: primal are. Like neurological mechanisms for smell is, for instance, right. And we have eye contact and body language, and now even vocal language and sound. There's lots of ways to connect. You can see somebody across the room, and you lock eyes, and maybe
1: you know you raise an eyebrow because it's something somebody else is saying is ridiculous, and you're communicating to them like this is dumb, and they they smile, and you you know you know that they get it, and you feel something, and this is all happening. You know, just with a face and another face across the room and and no verbalization.
0: But you've in that moment, you feel really connected to that person. Totally. And that's gotta be as real as like three cells next to each other in your body and one of them's trying to push a protein from himself into the next yeah, one. It is and real. the third it cell is, is going, Oh, don't you take that protein? That's gonna <laughs> fuck you up, you know. But like, if you know, if you're on like a Zoom call
1: or something, and and you're texting somebody aside, you know, about the call, or you're chatting with them privately or something, there is this sort of feeling of like a little bit of intimacy and secret communication, and maybe even a little oxytocin rush, you know, and that sort of feeling bonded with that person. But there isn't any eye contact there, so you know, how do we how do we explain that? But there's there's this oxytocin researcher, Paul Zack who who did a pretty small study, but did show that um, whether it's with text or with video conferencing or or with social media, you know, pinging, but like there is still some increase in oxytocin in those communications. It's not as much as you're going to get when it's skin to skin, eye to eye, when you're smelling somebody's pheromones, um, but it's also not nothing.
0: Yeah, no, and I felt that. I mean, remember back on the Art Bell show, the late night radio show. Mm-hmm. When Terence McKenna was dying of brain cancer, he had the whole audience do like a focused, like, let's try to heal Terence. Right. You know, and so we're all, it's like two in the morning, you know what? Everybody's around the country who listens to this show. We're all I felt connected to everybody when that was happening. Yeah. I mean, we've had these mass media events, even the landing of the moon. I mean, these right, are very exactly. television era, right. but the whole world feels like it's one thing for a moment, right? You know, and that's part of what part of what the challenge is as we move from these globally embracing media like television and radio to digital media, which are you know so polarizing in other ways. You know, they're they're very individualized. From e world to the iPhone, you know, is sort of the, the evolution of, of Apple. It's trickier. It's harder for us to experience that that sense of oneness.
1: Yeah and I and I would argue that our current government is is really challenging our
0: ability to feel unified as a nation and that's going to work against us. At least it's leveraging uh, I don't know that it caused it but it's certainly leveraging and amplifying that sense of divide in order to you know increase its own its own power.
1: Yes, I, w- I won't say it, it caused it. You know, one of the things uh, I mentioned in Good Chemistry is that our you know our nation has its own childhood wounding, right? I mean, first of all, we've got the genocide of the native population, and then and then we've got slavery, and like those are two huge traumas for us.
0: So it's one thing we kill the indigenous population, then import another right, population and then fuck to it, them ex-
1: over for for centuries. So our nation has its own sort of festering. Wounds I don't even know how to exorcise you know this level of national trauma. like how do you do that? But at least we should acknowledge it that it's there.
0: right you know, and the the healthy way. Of doing that very same thing, which is something that's always troubled me or, or confused me, is you know, the way we encounter one another. So, like there's a section in the book where you're talking about, you know, the ways to engender sort of openness and connection, mirroring somebody, validating, empathizing, the anchoring gaze, soothing tone. I mean, those are the things you can do with another person to try to engender trust. But is that manipulation or love? I mean, I understand. It, it's totally appropriate to do it consciously. If somebody's freaking out or there's you're, you're a crazy person, you mirror, you validate, you empathize. You could do an anchoring gaze and a soothing You could do it with your
1: kids. You can do it with anybody. You could a coworker.
0: But then when you're doing it with just people in a social situation, is that like neurolinguistic pro- programming manipulation of the other? Uh, so, yes, sure. But so is, so is any social interaction.
1: <laughs> you know i can speak to you in a certain way and and sort of be like rhythmic and and repetitive and mention certain things every once in a while that like get stuck in your head even though they're not your thoughts you start to think they are your thoughts like you know i think any any prolonged social interaction there's a level of manipulation that happens and that's and that's natural
0: and normal but it feels like if it's happening normally naturally and unconsciously then it's like okay but once you're doing it Like, okay, I'm going to drop in this word now. It's been two minutes. I'm going to drop it in again until, and oh, now I see they look down into the left when I do that. Therefore, they're a physical person or they're an audio person. That's where it starts to get scary to me that it's like uh, somehow inauthentic.
1: Well, I don't know if it's an authentic if, you you know, some people probably sort of have more advantage than others in terms of how they can manipulate people. And obviously some people have like a bully pulpit, or, you know, they have a bigger audience, things like that.
0: And some people just have natural daily charisma. They're just using the, these techniques more whether they realize it or not.
1: Yeah. All right. And then you have someone like Jim Jones who realized it and did it anyway, right? Or Tony Robbins or or any of them. Hitler, you know, who do we give that power to? I mean, you know, this, the, the Trump ayahuasca piece I'm working on, the thing I keep coming back to is like, this guy needs a neuropsych evaluation. Like if you're my patient, I'd be like, you should really get, you know, a full battery of cognitive tests and personality tests so that we really have a better sense of what we're working with here.
0: But if we can't do that, let's just spike his tea with LSD (laughs) and see what happens.
1: (laughs) I'm not saying that. Uh, I would never I really like people to have some sense of what they're getting they're getting into. No,
0: it's true. It's one of the two cardinal Timothy Leary rules of psychedelics. You don't stop anyone from doing a drug they want to do, and you don't have someone do a drug without their permission. You know, ever. No one
1: no one obviously should ever be drugged without their knowing it or against their will, but I do think that more people should avail themselves in a in a therapeutic framework if possible of the kind of realizations and revelations that you can get from being altered I mean, if I were in charge first of all, I really feel like uh, whoever's running for president should should just have a you know a, a transparent physical exam, a psychiatric exam. people should know what they're getting themselves into if they 've got family history of dementia or if they 've got a history of abusing stimulants or whatever it may be, it would just be nice to know what we 're getting ourselves into ahead of time and maybe maybe have that factor into who we want to vote for
0: yeah, I mean it's funny, my favorite story in the uh in the book, which I think you're going to have to tell a lot of times, because I think people are going to love it, is the the story about the octopus that they gave MDMA. It feels like that to me is the most hopeful part of the book, that these octopi that are like these antisocial competitive whatever, and they, you know, we know that they rip off the claws of crabs and turn them into weapons, and you know, they only show up for sex and stay away from each other otherwise. Right.
1: But, but under the influence of MDMA, they were playful as opposed to antagonistic, and it was it was pretty significant finding. They, they showed their little bellies to each other and yeah, stuff. Yeah, th- which, which means they really showed their most vulnerable
0: parts, which is quite symbolic. And it's just such a beautiful idea that then the octopus was just playing. It's just chilling, you know? Yeah. That they can trip. They... <laughs> It's just sort they, of amazing. The octopus
1: to me. can roll. Yes.
0: Yeah, but if the octopus could get to the place where it's really just chilling and going, whoa, I'm an octopus. This is this is cool. That you it changes your perception of all the animals in nature. You know, last week I had a an indigenous a person and scholar on on Team Human, and he was like, I love that you've I love that you've advanced the idea. of Find the others from Timothy's find the others like you, to find the other others. But he said, I want you to consider others that aren't even human. And when I read your story about the octopus, I was like, that's what he's trying to tell me, that they're all with us. My partner, Jeremy, and I, we, we have been having a lot of
1: close encounters with birds here where we live. And I have had like long extended eye contact with eagles and with hawks. Um, and recently we have a, we have an owl on our property now. I do have the sense that the animals, especially now, I mean, I was already having this before, but especially now that they are really kind of coming around and trying to communicate with us as best they can. And I hope this doesn't sound crazy. I am, I swear I am of sound mind, but um, this whole idea of like human animals, communication. Anybody who's tripped or taken MDMA ends up thinking a lot more about this and, and maybe have had experiences where they feel like they really are communicating with animals. And I, I would love more people to really talk about it and write about it because the, you know it'll help to normalize this idea and not make it sound so
0: insane. The business of psychedelics feels like the kind of The final confrontation between the powers of good and evil. In other words, that what happened to the internet is going to happen to psychedelia. Will business overtake and co-opt psychedelia? Or is psychedelia the ultimate way to infect capitalism? With, you know, with human, human and, and natural values. It's left to be seen. You know, the internet, so far anyway, could not withstand the onslaught of capitalism and startup culture. Psychedelia is so much older and more connected to the 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 essential greeny engines of of nature and creation. It may do to business, you know, what the Simpsons couldn't do to the Fox Network. <laughs>
1: many, many of us are concerned that capitalism is taking over and, and sort of making inroads into the, you know, psychedelic field, and they will piss in it and make it bad. And many of us uh, are are pushing for just decriminalization and legalization. And this is a plant. And if you can grow it, you should be able to ingest it. And these plant medicines, you know, we should have full access to. Um, why, why can't we just grow them in our own gardens? So I really hope that it can withstand it. It is it is a particularly sort of tender, challenging time right now. But there are people who who feel very strongly about how things should be or how they shouldn't be. There's a lot of sort of vested interests and parties. And I, I am trying to sort of stay uh, in the mix and stay relevant and make sure that people do things for good and not for evil. Territoriality and tribalism, like, you know, we're hardwired for this stuff. So there are going to be a lot of sort of growing pains. And the truth is that there is a mechanism in place for getting these, these plant medicines out to people. And that is sort of medical approval and FDA approval. And, but then the issue is like, well, is insurance going to pay for this? How, what is this going to look like? You know, and there's, and these medicines are not like anything else. It's not like you have a bottle of 30 and you go home and you take one a day. There's just, there's no precedent for, you know, medicines that are taken during therapy as a catalyst how do we code for these you know like wh- how do you how do you bill for this but people are scaling up as if as if we will be able to do these things but right now you know this also brings up this whole issue of of accessibility and like right now like psychedelic community is very white it's not very integrated there are very few clinicians of color um, research subjects patients of color so you know, we we need to do a lot of work to make these medicines really available to the people who need them most, which is not necessarily the people who are taking them the most.
0: You know, that's kind of what I was arguing back at the Disinfo conference way back in like 1999, yeah. that we've got to give up being cool. You know, it's fun to be the ones who actually know about this stuff. But as long as we're the only ones who do, the the rest of the world's going to remain you know, unhealed.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, there's, I am, I'm not going to say I'm like taking a victory lap, but I am sort of feeling validated that the things I've been talking about since the mid eighties are finally coming to pass back back then it was all like harm reduction and, you know, needle exchange and, you know, make sure everybody has condoms and stuff like that and supervised injection facilities. Some of that took a long time to come around, but it is all coming around and, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. More and more people know about it. More people understand that psilocybin can help with end-of-life issues and with anxiety. And wait till we see the data that's going to come out in treating addictions with psychedelics because it is going to be very powerful. And that that will be lovely because we're going to have more people addicted to all sorts of things coming out of this collective trauma.
0: And if Big Pharma can make as much money on psychedelics as they do on all of those opiate addictions, they'll be just fine with this.
1: But, you know, the, here, here's the big issue is that these are not once a day meds. And so there really isn't as much money in it for big pharma, but they'll try to figure out how, I mean, that, that's why they're going to glom onto microdosing, right? Because there are more doses, but you know, for the, for the big psychedelic assisted psychotherapy, you're talking about taking this drug once or maybe two or three times, you know, in your lifetime to really tackle these big traumatic issues. There's no money in, in, in a pill you're only going to take two or three times, but there's money in the daily dose. So it it will be curious to see. I, I imagine that's why they'll probably glom onto microdosing more than macrodosing. I, I mean I can't pretend to know the the mind of, of Big Pharma. I just know that all all those great psychoceuticals are gonna be in the pipeline soon. So <laughs>
0: <laughs> Exactly. Buyer beware. <laughs> well, thank you, Julie. Thank I, it's always great to connect with you, especially about the the topic of connection. Yes. I love speaking with you. Thanks for being on Team Human. Our guest today was Dr. Julie Holland, author of the new book, Good Chemistry, The Science of Connection from Soul to Psychedelics. You can find out more about Julie and all of our guests at teamhuman.fm, where you can also become a supporter and get free stuff and access to our new members-only Discord channel. Join Team Human members like Daniel Green, Neil Levine, Sam Watkins, Stephen Connery, Sean Drury, and Mary Ayataka. Thanks so much for keeping Team Human going. The show and most of my monologues are also on Medium at medium.com team human. Team Human is produced by Josh Chapdelin and edited by Luke Robert Mason. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps.